0: Hello listeners. Before we begin, a few brief content warnings. This episode contains profanity, explicit discussion of sexual violence and rape, discussions of racism and racist tropes, and explicit discussion of violence and death. Please take care of yourself while listening to this episode. And now, here we go. listeners, and welcome to Classically Trained, a podcast where we talk about media that does its very best to portray the ancient Mediterranean world, its stories, and its peoples. I'm Julia, your resident Greek literature specialist, linguist, sort of, and like queer and gender theory person.
1: Um, And I'm Allison, your Roman archaeology
0: human being. Alright, uh, so today we are talking about episodes 4, 5, and 6 of Troy, Fall of a City. This is our third episode on this show. The next episode will be the last one, thank God. I, that's exactly what I was thinking. I don't
1: want to do any more episodes on this.
0: And so also, I don't feel like it's necessary for us to say this at this point, given what just got said, but to begin, Allison, did you like these episodes at all?
1: Of several minutes of each episode were good. That's about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, I can say this for these episodes. I finished watching episode four and didn't want to throw up at the prospect of having to watch two more episodes, which is better than I was doing after watching the first episode. As we've gone along, the episodes have gotten better as we've gotten like more into the story, and there's like more and more tolerable minutes. However, the show is still very bad, and we have some very large things to complain about.
1: Yes. Um, and it's also very boring. Yeah. The biggest gripe with this is that it is
0: boring. Yeah. So, before we get into our specific discussions of what happens in these episodes, I guess I should tell you what happens in the episodes, huh? So, in brief, episodes 4, 5, and 6 of Troy, Fall of a City detail the events of the Iliad, finally. We begin in episode four with the Greeks attacking and, uh, pillaging the kingdom, maybe unclear in the show, of, uh, Cilicia, which is a kind of nearby allied kingdom of Troy. During this attack, Achilles, uh, takes several captives. Most importantly, the women Chryseis, the daughter of a priest of Apollo, and Briseis. He claims Briseis for himself, and Chryseis is claimed by Agamemnon, which ends up causing a bunch of problems because Apollo is mad that his like priest's daughter is being raped, Mm -hmm. and he causes a big plague. And then, in order to stop the plague, Agamemnon has to give Chryseis back to her father. And then he claims Briseis, Achilles' slave, in her place. This is what kicks off the events of the Iliad canonically. We also get in episode four, the proposed duel, like 1v1, between Paris and Menelaus. The winner takes all. Unfortunately, Paris escapes at the end of the duel, and the Trojans don't honor the terms, even though he lost. Episode five there is some fighting paris is on the run the greeks are looking for paris and trying to figure out how to stop the trojans without the help of achilles who is big mad about Briseis being taken by agamemnon and is refusing to fight the trojans find out that achilles has retired from the battlefield and decide to attack and then we get to episode six the trojans have recovered paris from the wilderness They devise a plot to sneak behind the Greek lines, knowing that the Myrmidons aren't going to stop them. The Myrmidons are Achilles' forces, and they burn the Greek supplies. Patroclus, Achilles' closest companion and lover, decides to lead the Myrmidons, wearing Achilles' armor, out onto the battlefield to stop the Trojans from destroying their supplies. Patroclus is killed by Hector. Achilles kind of loses his mind, challenges Hector to a duel kills Hector and that is basically the end of the episode um so that's the plot
1: yes there's also um a bunch of random stuff in there with Helen like sort of betraying the Trojans a little bit because she thinks it's her fault that like, the the Trojan supply line got cut off from Selechia and that they attacked Selechia. Yeah,
0: well, Achilles, like, came to visit her, and she, like, let him leave. Yeah. And so it is actually her fault that they... Fa- she no, didn't tell him. No, it's not her fault. It's the fault of the spy. Right.
1: As far as my understanding.
0: But yeah. she is also the one who doesn't, like, scream and call the guards. She lets Achilles go. Yeah. So... There's a lot going on with her. And frankly, I don't care about any of it because most of it was really boring. Yes, uh, I
1: would have to agree with that.
0: So let's get into some of the details of these episodes. Start from the top, I guess. Episode four, which is the whole Chryseis, Briseus thing that prefaces the quarrel between Achilles and Agamemnon. A lot of this stuff comes directly from the Iliad, which is fine. And unfortunately, the showrunners decided to give us a pretty graphic rape scene in this episode. Yeah, so, um,
1: Criseus gets raped by Agamemnon, which, like, okay, I have a lot of problems with showing graphic rape scenes in shows, because when you show a graphic sexual assault of a woman, it's not really about, like, talking about sexual assault, it's, like, using a- it's, it's the same as fridging. You're basically doing a fridging except with sexual assault. Whereas there's, like, a a show that actually does this really well is Jessica Jones, where they talk about the impact of, like, sexual assault and abuse without ever showing sexual assault. Yeah. So you don't need to show sexual assault to talk about the impact of it. And so showing it is just really lazy. And, like, even if it's not going to actively trigger you, like, I didn't enjoy watching it. It's just deeply unpleasant. Like, nobody wants to see that.
0: Yeah. And, like... To be clear, when we say a graphic rape scene, we don't mean we got, like, a really vivid visual shot of what's going on. I mean, there's a pretty brutal shot, visual shot of what's going on the first time he rapes her. To be clear, this is also prefaced by him, like, talking about how sad he is that his daughter is dead. And then she's like, you suck. And then he throws her down on the bed. And it's really fucked up. But we get... Not just that shot, but also several subsequent shots of, like, the outside of the tent overlaid with her screaming for him to stop. Yeah. And it's really disturbing and unnecessary, and we get men talking about it, too. We could have just had them being like, oh, he's at it again. You know, like, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's so unnecessary, it's so violent, it's hard to watch.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's just unnecessary and unpleasant for everybody involved and probably including the people who have to film that so why don't we just not do that also, there's a weird bit. It seems like he chooses Criseus because he kind of wants to treat her like a daughter. Like, he's he's trying to, like, get her to eat the foods that his daughter likes. And as soon as she's like, you're a shithead, he, it goes from, oh, I'm going to treat you the surrogate daughter to, oh, I'm going to rape you. Which yeah. sure is a thing. Yeah, it was it a happens. decision
0: that they made. <laughs> and we get it as a contrast to the way they deal with Criseus, which is shockingly quite good. Yeah. So here's the thing about the character of Briseis. I've read a number of adaptations of the Iliad. And I have, of course, read the Iliad a number of times. And Briseis is a difficult character to deal with because she doesn't get to talk really at all very much in the Iliad. Other people talk about her. Like, for example, Achilles talks about being in love with her in the text of the Iliad. But it it's very clear that a lot of what motivates him is less that he loves her and more that his pride has been injured. Yeah. So it's hard to feel like it's really genuine. And yet at the same time, basically the only time we do hear from her is when Patroclus dies and she gives a she gives a lament at his funeral and seems genuinely upset that that like that Patroclus was kind to her and Now he's gone, and she no longer has any chance of, like, a future with this guy. And specifically because there's kind of an implication that Achilles thinks he's going to die at Troy. Like, probably Briseis would have ended up married to Patroclus, if not for the fact that Patroclus dies. And so she seems, in the Iliad anyways, as much as a slave woman can. It's, okay, I'll say this. It's possible to read Briseis in the Iliad as having genuine affection for Patroclus. And possibly even also for Achilles. Of course, that's not the only possible reading. Yeah. She is a captive of war. Everyone else in her city has been killed by Achilles and his men. He picked her out of the crowd because he thought she was pretty. And a lot of his actions are very clearly motivated by pride as much as or more than whatever love he might feel for her. Yeah. It's pretty fucked up. And I've read adaptations where they give a pretty positive spin on that relationship, both Briseis and Patroclus and Briseis and Achilles. Yeah. But I've also read, um, for example, uh, The Silence of the Girls, which is a novel by Pat Barker, gives an extremely brutal take on Achilles' relationship with Briseis, which is a valid interpretation. I do, however, think that it is possible to both respect the fact that Briseis is under duress and in a position of less power and not characterize Achilles as a monster. And I think that Fall of a City, shockingly, does a pretty good job striking that balance. Yeah.
1: I think the one thing that I will say is that I wish they had given more time to those relationships and actually given them time to develop, because they don't really do that which is a real shame because they spend a lot of time on relationships that are not interesting or emotionally satisfying or where you don't really believe that there's, like, any sort of relationship between the characters. Whereas with Briseis and Patroclus especially, you, like, see that Patroclus is, like, trying to be kind to her and that she she's appreciative of that kindness, which is, like, a super easy thing to do. And yet they spend all of this time on... Paris and Helen, which is not an interesting relationship, and also not a relationship where you see any development based on things that they do for each other. Yeah. Like, there's no show, there's no, it's all tell no show with Paris and Helen.
0: Yeah. And with Briseis, Achilles, and Patroclus, we get, Briseis like, threatens to kill Patroclus in the first interaction that they have, and Achilles shuts that shit down, but like, she has... At least enough agency and like awareness of her position to like know that she's in a bad spot and also to try something at least, and that Achilles and Patrickles are both aware that like she's willing to make an attempt on their lives. She's not willing to throw herself under the bus for it, but like that's a that's a dynamic that's there. I, I think that really shifts the way that that I read the later stuff. Yeah. And then that we don't see either of them being abusive towards her. And then later, so, blessed be, all three of them end up having sex. Like, yes. First of all, thank you for not erasing the fact that Achilles and Patroclus were probably, or, like, are definitely legible as lovers. As early as the classical period, people were reading them that way, and people have continued to read them that way for a long time. And... There are a number of of adaptations that erase it, and that pisses me off. Yeah. But likewise, it's also very possible to erase Briseis's dynamic with either of the men, if you are going to, or both of them, if you're going to have them be in a relationship with each other. And, like, monogamy is not the only option here. And my favorite way to resolve a love triangle is with a threesome.
1: Absolutely. Like, the throuple that is going on here, I am fully supportive of. And she initiates it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so, well, she, she sort of does, like, they're already kind of, what happens is, like, Achilles and Patroclus are wrestling, and then they start making out.
0: In any case, certainly she initiates her own involvement yeah, in that she dynamic. Mm-hmm. She kisses Patroclus, and then Achilles kisses her when she, once she's indicated receptiveness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is good, And I liked that a lot. Mm -hmm. I would like to
1: complain, however, that despite having many deeply uncomfortable scenes where we see all of the sex between Helen and Paris, they basically cut away while they're still like kissing, which really pissed me off because I'm like, all of the sex scenes between Paris and Helen are so uncomfortable and I don't want to see And they're so
0: long and they're so... They're so heterosexual. And I say that in the most pejorative possible sense.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like there's no... They have not established that these characters have any chemistry with one another. Whereas they managed to, in one like half an episode, establish chemistry between these three characters. So it's like, why did you cut away from the only... Like erotic possible sex In this whole yeah. show It's
0: like we're gonna get All of these bland Uncomfortable sex scenes Between Paris and Helen We're gonna get Like multiple graphic rapes And we're not gonna let The one like queer Sexual arrangement Have any fucking screen time not to be like, it's homophobia, but it's homophobia. Yeah,
1: no, it is homophobia.
0: And also low-key racism, because yeah. these are also two black men.
1: Yeah, it's like, God forbid we see gay sex. Who wants to see two men having sex? And it's actually it turns out a lot of people would like to see two men yeah. having sex.
0: I have a couple more things to say about episode four. One of them is, just to finish up with Kriseis and what happens with her... One of the few things in the way they dealt with Chryseis, who, again, to go back, is the woman who Agamemnon rapes, is that in the Iliad, what happens is her father asks for her return. Her father is a priest of Apollo. He asks for her return. When Agamemnon tells him to fuck off, he goes and prays to Apollo and is like, please punish the Greeks. And because this is his priest, Apollo does so. In the show, it's kind of implied that this is happening because Apollo is mad that Agamemnon is violating a a devoted daughter of his own cult. That Apollo is doing it on Chryseis's behalf and not just because her father asked. Mm-hmm. And I liked that it gives Chryseis a little bit of agency, and it means that when she's like, "You're gonna pay for this," that she's telling the truth. And it's because of what's happening to her and not because her father is mad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We get a brief glimpse of Apollo. He's extremely nondescript. I think he appears in the form of the priest to start the, like, plague that is his punishment, which is bad. Doesn't make sense given that his sister is, wo- is not white. And also... It's pretty explicit multiple times in the Iliad that the way that Apollo sends plague is by, like, raining arrows down.
1: Yes, which is way doper. Yeah, and
0: and they just, like, decided that he was just gonna wander through camp and, like, touch a guy on the shoulder, and he, like, rolls over and starts coughing.
1: Yeah. I also, and this is another sort of, like, broader problem that they, like, really don't spend time on the interesting stuff, or, like, draw stuff out for dramatic effect. So they go straight to the plague like, just all of the men being really, really sick. Whereas in the Iliad, like, it's like this drawn-out thing, whereas this they resolve, like, in half an episode or something. And yeah, it's like, this would have had more impact if you had spent more time on this particular part of the story and not spent a bunch of time adding all of these extra things in that are just not interesting.
0: Yeah. And the other thing is that this... I liked this, that the resolution happens because Patroclus starts to get sick and Achilles is like not going to let my yes, not going to let like my mm-hmm. not going to let my my boyfriend die. I did <laughs> like that the like personal motivation. Mm-hmm. In some ways I liked that. On the other hand, it neglects the fact that Achilles is also a king yeah. who cares about the men under his command beyond just Patroclus. Mm. And in fact that he is invested in the Greek cause at this point and like in the Iliad, he confronts Agamemnon publicly at a gathering of the kings in front of everyone to call him to account for the fact that his actions are destroying the entire camp. Mm-hmm. In this, he gets mad because of an extremely personal cause, and he confronts Agamemnon privately. The whole thing goes down in private. There's no public confrontation until Agamemnon goes to reclaim to claim Briseis in Chryseis's place. Yeah. That happens publicly, but the part where Achilles calls Agamemnon to account for being a piece of shit, that happens privately, and frankly, I think that it takes a lot of the impact out of the fact that, like, Achilles is right. Yeah, and also it kind of, like, doesn't make
1: as much sense when Achilles gets really pissed about uh, Briseis being taken away and his pride being hurt, because then he didn't really do the other stuff publicly beforehand. So that's not really – like, then Briseis gets taken away, but then do people know why Briseis is being – like, we don't really get the part.
0: Yeah, we we don't know if anybody knows that the reason Agamemnon finally gave in is because Achilles demanded it. Other than that Agamemnon, like, says that. I mean, it sort of makes sense, especially if it's like, we resolved this privately, you did the right thing privately, and now you're making a public stink and humiliating me in front of a bunch of people – Yeah. That sort of checks out. I don't know. My thing is that Achilles takes it weirdly calmly. Yeah. So, one of the things that they do in this show is, like, the warrior stoicism thing, which is very modern, and, like, no – Achilles gets mad, he shouts, he throws the, like, talking staff at the ground and storms off when Agamemnon confronts him. He weeps publicly for days and days and days. He wanders the beach mourning when Briseis is taken from him. When Patroclus dies, he spends three fucking days lying on his corpse, like, rubbing mud in his hair and weeping. Achilles emotes a lot. Yeah, it is his first and most strong like character trait that he has a lot of big feelings and they are very visible. He wears his emotions openly. And yet in this in this adaptation, when Agamemnon comes to take Briseis, he's like, fine, take her, but I won't fight for you. And Agamemnon's like, that's fine. And he grabs her and Achilles just like turns away.
1: Yeah, no, it's... I. Where's the rage? The one thing that I will say about this is because they cast Achilles as a black man, the fact that they didn't have him being super... The fact that they, A, didn't have him being super openly, like, angry and violent, and B, had him be, like, sort of, like, almost, like, wise about how dumb this whole war is were kind of, like, better choices because having him be super violent might be kind of be reinforcing some bad stereotypes but the but- thing is
0: he's not non-violent is the thing he, he, yeah, he openly will- professes at multiple points to like loving combat and being yeah. really excited about killing his opponents and all yeah. of this stuff and he's like why am I here if not to fight so he is quite violent and they play into a number of tropes about black male violence and also about the idea that like black men don't have feelings yes if the only emotion that Achilles in the Iliad ever expressed was rage and violence, yeah. then I would say yeah, that checks out. But he also is full of grief. Oh yeah,
1: no, I, I like I totally agree that like they should have done more to show him. He
0: needs to grieving. have all of his emotions. Let's finish off episode four. Okay. There's one more thing to talk about, and that is the duel between Paris and Menelaus. So I'll frame with canon real quick. This happens in the Iliad. The... I can't remember who proposes it, actually, in the Iliad, but one of the parties is like, this is... Let's just have a 1v1 fight. Paris and Menelaus are gonna duke it out, and whoever lives through this duel takes Helen, and the Greeks will leave. The Trojans will surrender, and the Greeks will leave. Or the Greeks will just leave if Menelaus dies. Yeah. Like... That that does actually happen. And it also happens in the Iliad that Menelaus gets the better of Paris. Now, to be clear, in the Iliad, it happens because he is genuinely a better fighter and not because he pulls some weird trickery crap. Some weird emotional trickery. It's like, oh, trickery. you're a bad person because of a prophecy and oh, we nice. all know. Like, I don't know. It's just weird posturing and it wasn't necessary. You could have just let Menelaus be a good fighter. I don't understand why they didn't.
1: Yeah. Like, the the fact that they're like, here's this priest, and I'm going to emotionally upset you by the priest saying that you're a
0: cursed man. They're, like, <laughs> trying to set up Odysseus and his trickery as, like, a thing, I think. Yeah. But, I mean, but then they already do that,
1: like, they already have him be... Like Trixie, Trixie elsewhere. So yeah, it's
0: not necessary. It's not, nece- it's not it's necessary stupid. anyway. It's
1: dumb. But so, I think also too is that they want us again. They're so like invested as framing like Paris is the hero of this for whatever reason. Yeah, it's bad. They, yeah, they they do like want Paris to have a reason to lose. It isn't just oh he's not a very good fighter. Cause he hasn't been trained to fight. Yeah, like in it's in this version like he's
0: and I mean in the Iliad like he's an okay warrior, but he is predominantly trained as an archer. So, yeah, he doesn't win anyway. And then in the Iliad, Aphrodite sweeps in and rescues him, which is basically what happens in this, too, except in the Iliad, she, like, turns him invisible and whisks him away back into the city on a cloud. And in this, she's like, RUN! And he fucking runs off, which is so dumb. Like, it's so unnecessary to have him be uh. like, oh, Paris is a coward. And, like, this whole, the whole plot of episode five resol- revolves around Paris being, like, on the run out in the woods. Yeah. And it's complete nonsense and unnecessary. Well, they're trying to give
1: him emotional development in episode five. Where they're like, look at his relationship with his, like adoptive father and it's it, but yeah it, it I just don't care because I don't care about Paris. They're trying to keep at elements of the plot of the Iliads that make Paris look like a fucking idiot while also having us root for Paris. They've just made like these really like conflicting storytelling decisions that just make Paris completely unlikable but also we spend way too much time with him and they also have to try to fix the fact that he is unlikable by trying to humanize him which just ends up being annoying because we don't like him and we don't really believe that
0: he is, you know, a good person. I have one petty gripe about the duel and then we can move on to the next episode. Here's my petty gripe. Why are they dueling with swords? Do people not, do they duel with spears?
1: Yes. Oh, I, I'm a bad. I feel like, don't they have spears and swords? I
0: mean, they have spears and swords, but like... We can talk about this when we get to Achilles and Hector, but basically every, like, duel in the Iliad starts with so-and-so threw his spear and missed or hit. And then other so-and-so, if he survived the initial blow, threw his spear and either missed or hit. And then they actually engage in close combat. Even these protracted duels, like, even the duel between Menelaus and Paris starts with them throwing spears at each other, because that's how you do combat in... Like Homer,
1: it's like a soccer game. It's like, oh, you go to a penalty shootout. Basically, and each person gets a turn.
0: Yeah, <laughs> each person gets a fucking shot with a spear. And if you both miss, then you hit each other with swords. I here's my one other petty gripe: Why do there? Why like? Why are their shields like that? Why are they just metal? They should be covered in leather. So, uh, episode five, nothing happens. We have two. Okay. So here's what happens. Helen <laughs> Helen does some, like, spy shit because, as Allison mentioned earlier, she believes that she was responsible for, like, Cilicia getting attacked. And she's kind of playing both sides within Troy because she's, like, letting Odysseus's spy guy, Xanthius, like, do what he needs to do to keep her safe and, like, not get in trouble with the Trojans. But also she's like, oh, I feel so bad. The Trojans are dying. I love my new people. Like, bitch, just turn in this spy guy and be like, look, he's been causing all of these problems. Here's the spy. Yeah. Also, Xanthius keeps
1: murdering people.
0: Yeah, And Helen's like,
1: I told you not to do a murder. I can't actually remember if this was in episode 5 or she, 6.
0: I think it's in 5, um, because that's when Pandarus
1: dies. Yeah, and which- then he she, he does a murder. And and at this point, by the way, she, he has already murdered one person. Yeah. So like, it's not like she doesn't know that he's probably going to murder this guy too. Yeah. And she's like, please don't murder him. And then he murders him. And she's like, how could you do that? And he's
0: like... It's yeah. like,
1: what did you think I was gonna do?
0: Yeah, here's my here's my serious notes about this. One, Rip to Pandarus, the one, aside from Aeneas, the, like, one brown guy in Troy. Yeah, hmm And two, the guy who plays Xanthius is, like, the most Semitic-looking person on this show. Yes. And he is a scary, underhanded spy who does murders uh-huh. and lies to everyone. <laughs> I'm just just putting it no, out there. I didn't even notice that we don't need you're, we, you're right I don't feel the need to elaborate that any, any further uh I that's uh, I feel I've made my point uh, uh, uh. anyway that's aside from that basically nothing happens in this episode I do have a side note about Aeneas which is why is he here
1: Like, I actually like Alfred Enoch as Aeneas, but, like, Aeneas is just, like, randomly here the whole time. He doesn't really have any character development. I mean, he is in
0: the Iliad. Yeah, but he's, like, he is actually around the whole time. No, but they've, like, excised,
1: like, Diomedes, they've excised all these characters, these other characters from the Iliad that they don't really have anything to do with. Yeah, So he's just kind of floating around. Like, he's not doing anything for the plot. Yeah, I
0: mean, he's kind of just an extra Trojan. I guess they decided (laughs) that they have enough Greeks, but they needed to flush out the Trojan cast, so Aeneas is just here.
1: Yeah, because they're not really, like, doing anything with him, and it's, like, it's a shame because Alfred Enoch is a great Aeneas. He's great. I would love to see... I would actually love to see them take some of the Aeneid material. Like, if they want to use other material, like... The Aeneid is a great Poem but yeah It's like there's Aeneas is a really Interesting character I kind of Aeneas Is my problematic fave I love him He's very stupid But he's great he's so stupid
0: <laughs> We had two petty Gripes about episode 5 do you want to do yours First
1: yeah so Well yeah I'll start with with the more Archaeology related one yeah which is That at one point Xanthius is in This weird like Cave house thing by the city wall and this little kid that he's been living with comes to like find him and he's like, oh, isn't this place cool?
0: Some Minoans used to live here. What? Oh my god. That made me so angry too. I also wrote it down. I was just like, some Minoans lived here. What the fuck is that? What does that they simply, <laughs> nobody on this show, care knows or cares about who the Minoans actually were, what they had to do with anything. Yeah,
1: well, but the the annoying part of it is they take all of this Minoan imagery to use in, like, the present-day palace. And they're like, oh, the Minoans are an ancient people that used to live here.
0: Except they're (sighs) clearly, like, no, they're not an ancient people. They're from, like, yesterday. They're, like, the previous generation, which is, like... So clearly they know one thing about the Minoans and they just decided to use this whole culture as set dressing instead of anything else you know
1: what though I wish they had just committed to the Minoan aesthetic and made all the women in Troy walk around with their boobs out same because that would have been great because at a certain point like once you get past like oh my god they're a woman with their boobs out you're just like oh it's just normal that the women have their boobs out Uh, because we do have this Minoan imagery which may or may not be fake because of the Arthur Evans reasons we've talked about before of women wearing these dresses where their breasts are exposed And that actually would have been a really cool choice and it would have super normalized the fact that women have nipples and those nipples are not scary.
0: Instead, we do get women with their breasts out on occasion, but it's only ever Helen when she's fucking Paris. Yep. Anyway. (laughs) That's it. And not any of the women who, like, breastfeed in this show, for example. Uh, Speaking of Helen, here's the other episode five, Petty Gripe. She gets sent to the, like, widow's quarters and... She confesses that she doesn't know how to weave. All women in antiquity wove fabric. All women in antiquity. No matter of their social class, doesn't matter if you're the fucking queen, Helen knew how to weave. She, she should have known how to weave. She spends most of the Iliad weaving. We get all of the women in the Iliad weaving at various times. All women wove fabric.
1: Like, weaving is like... For for elite women, weaving is, like, the ancient equivalent of embroidery, right? Like, you see, like, fucking elite women in the 15th century embroidering. Like, it's the same thing. It doesn't matter if you're really wealthy. You might not do the weaving of, like, you know, your, like, dishcloths, but you would weave. Like, it's so important that women weave. Like, it's yeah. a central part of women's, like,
0: social roles is to weave. Yeah, this is this is like women's contributions to household economies. This is what they spent most of their time doing. This is how they made social connections as they sat together and they wove. All women wove. All women wove. Yeah,
1: well, I think this is a really difficult thing for modern peoples to understand because of the way that we acquire clothing. Is it like making fabric is really hard and time consuming and somebody has to do it in the ancient world because you can't you can't really even buy most people can't really buy ready-made fabrics like even when you get later you know even like 500 years ago you might have been able to buy a ready-made fabric but like in antiquity you couldn't go down to fabric land and buy some fabric like you had to make all of your own fabrics which means like if you look at say the shirt you're wearing all the individual threads you had to Weave those together. Yeah. <laughs> like, weaving is, like, an enormously time-consuming thing if you wanted to wear anything that wasn't, like, an animal pelt.
0: This is why, and this is the other thing, is, like, we were talking about this in a previous episode that people didn't do a lot of sewing in antiquity, and it's because they spent all of their time just producing cloth. Yeah. It was a lot of work, and everyone took part in it. hmm And the fact that they decided for some goddamn reason that Helen does not know how to weave... Made me big mad.
1: I think they're trying to sort of separate her from these other women. They're trying to show that like Helen is this like queen who's like this foreign queen who is yeah. separate from the other. But these I mean widows, we don't but, like,
0: see but we don't see Andromache and Hecuba weaving either. No. So we I don't. think they're trying to make like a class distinction that yeah. just doesn't check out because yes, there was class stratification in antiquity, but everybody did labor of some kind because it was necessary. In order to function. Yeah,
1: I don't even think they thought that hard about it. Like, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily even have time to show any of the other elite women weaving. But we do see, the thing is, is the Widow's Quarter do presumably have elite women in them, and they are weaving there. So it was, I think it was really just more of a thing, like, they were trying to do some character development with Helen, and they just didn't really think about what they were saying when they said, oh, I can't weave.
0: And that's it. This episode had nothing else in it. Oh, Paris jumps off a cliff.
1: Yes. At the end of the
0: episode.
1: I was like, man, I know they're probably not going to kill him for good, but I really hope this is the end of Paris.
0: Yeah, it would have been great. Unfortunately, (laughs) Uh, he is the main character. uh, 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 For some goddamn reason, he is the main character of this show. So, no, he does live. He gets rescued by the Amazons. God. All right, episode six. So, now time to do... The entire back half of the Iliad in one episode.
1: But why,
0: I just don't understand why they like felt the need to do all of the Iliad So, so quickly. So here's the thing about the pacing of this show. They could have cut at least two thirds of the material in episode five and frankly, probably all of the material in episode five and just had like episode four and episode six, both have that material expand out like half an hour to fill that middle section and give more time to all of the development of like the Briseis, Achilles, Patroclus situation and even the whole like situation with the trading of Chryseis. we could have had more time to develop the, the drama of the plague and, you know, had a full proper confrontation between Achilles and Agamemnon and really like set up the quarrel. We could have given way more time to the Paris and Menelaus duel And then on the other side, we could have had way more come down from Patroclus' death. Yes. What happens in episode six is we get essentially kind of the emotional beat of book six of the Iliad, where we get this book in the Iliad where Hector goes back into Troy. He comes back behind the walls to visit his mother and his wife and his brother and Helen And he, like, talks to all these people and kind of checks in with everybody inside of the city. And we get these emotional beats where it's like, oh, Hector isn't just the, like, terrifying faceless villain emblematic of the Trojan warrior. He is a man with a wife and a son and a mother who loves him. And he's gentle to Helen and he's a good, honorable man who doesn't deserve what's coming for him down the line and we get some of that in episode 6. We get Hector walking around, we get him like connecting with the dying soldiers. We get this like tragic moment where he like meets this dying kid. Allison thinks this was stupid.
1: I see it was forced. It felt very forced. So, but...
0: to be clear, he meets this dying kid and is like, "Who are you?" and the kid's like, "I'm an orphan." And he says, "No, you're the you're a son of Troy." what's your name? And the kid says, Astyanax. And if you know anything about the Iliad, you know that that is what Hector's son is named. So down the line, Hector ends up naming his son after this, this dying kid. The other thing that happens in this episode, other than the plot of the, like books 16 through 22 of the Iliad, <laughs> is that Paris so Paris jumped off a cliff at the end of the last episode, and he gets rescued by the Amazons. As I said, mm-hmm. it's pretty bad. It yes, it is bad. I mean, it's not like a hundred percent bad. It's just bad that they chose to do it at all. It's really unnecessary. They do this like thing with Pent- Penthesilea, the queen of the Amazons, like having a big grudge against Achilles. Also, a bunch of the Amazons are women of color, which is like. I don't know, made me cringe a little bit just because the whole thing with the Amazon... Like, I guess I'm too used to reading the Amazons in Greek literature contexts where they are so clearly just a parallel for, like, the bad and evil foreigner who does things differently from us and therefore must be destroyed.
1: To go back to Paris and him jumping off the cliff, um, I have a lot of problems with how Paris and his fate is handled So, in a lot of the material, like the ancient Greek material and in the Iliad, Paris is. Paris's actions are simply the thing that causes the war. Paris himself is not like evil or cursed.
0: It's just that. um, There is. So, this story about Paris being like sent out to be killed by his parents and is rescued by the huntsman, that actually does come from the Greek canon.
1: But that's not quite the same thing as being, like, inherently cursed. So there's this idea that, like, because the thing is, is by the time in, in this plot that we get around to talking about, like, the evil omens about Paris, Paris's action of taking Helen has already caused has already like kickstarted the downfall of Troy. So the bad thing that was being foretold has already happened. Yeah. Um so them talking about how Paris like after Paris has already done this awful thing that kickstarts a bunch of death and destruction, them going on to talk about how he is inherently evil and cursed and how if he comes back into the city, it will inevitably mean the downfall of Troy like doesn't really make any sense. It's already happened. It's already He's hap- come back. Yeah. So, but what what really also bothers me is just some of what I really love about ancient Greek tragedy and also about the Iliad in particular is that it's it's really trying to deal with the fact that we don't have control over a lot of what happens in our lives. And like, I mean, there are lots of different ways to read this, but at least the way that I read this is that the gods are really sort of a metaphor for all of these natural things that just can happen, like earthquakes or floods, or somebody dying in childbirth. Like, all of these things that are out of our control that happen for no good reason. Or
0: pandemics. Or pan- God. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry to anybody listening to this podcast in uh, years later than, like, 2021. Uh, uh, uh. Listen, There is a plague in the episode and also COVID. I just was thinking about it when I was watching the episode with the plague. Like, oh, this is so hard to watch right now. Yeah. mm -hmm. But it is. It's another one of these things that, like, the Greeks blamed on the gods because it was something outside of their control. Yeah, And then there's also this idea that that people are just caught up in these gods
1: like whims that things aren't happening for any like deep and meaningful reason but because the gods are petty and their pettiness has massive impacts on what happens to people like the story of Paris and the apple is pettiness that leads to the downfall of a city (laughs) right it Paris happens to choose Aphrodite and so that results in all of this carnage because three goddesses got in a quarrel and so by saying that Paris is inherently evil and cursed completely undermines that completely undermines the thing that I find really interesting and meaningful about the Iliad so that is why this bothers me.
0: This is the thing is like a lot of, particularly with Aphrodite is like, I have a note in here somewhere when I was watching this episode, particularly the bit where Aphrodite is going around and being like oh when Paris jumped off the cliff he, like, died and then oh came back God. to life. Uh-huh. So, so bad. But so now the curse is over because he died. And Aphrodite goes around and says this, not just to Paris, but also to, like, Hector and mm-hmm. also to to Hacuba and Priam. And, like, I made a note that says, aha, like, Aphrodite do be out here starting shit. Which... And then I have a subnote that says I was about to be like, isn't that just all of Greek epic though? But actually it is Poseidon starting shit in the Odyssey. However, Aphrodite like starts shit in a number of different things and her starting shit is like the cause of a lot of bad stuff in Greek mythology. And what that comes down to and what that's kind of an explanation for in some ways is that sometimes people fall in love with inadvisable others and also that the Greeks Like, Aphrodite was one of the most terrifying deities to them because the extremes that love and lust can drive people to... Like, we see it all the time in actual society. People go fucking crazy, like, when they think they are or actually are in love. And, like, that is... it's, It's an aspect of human nature that people are, like, dealing with frequently quite poorly. And it's something that's, like... It's possible to be like, yeah, people being in love with the wrong people causes problems and Paris is causing all of these problems because of this being inflicted on him by Aphrodite without it being like, it's his fate to be cursed. Yeah, well, I feel like they're really trying to do a modern
1: chosen one narrative with Paris, which is just really conflicts with a lot of the ancient material. And they really needed to make a bunch of like, different decisions if they really wanted to do that with the material. Like, yeah. they can't have... they're sort of mashing all of these things together, and then you end up with these really, like, contradicting themes.
0: Yeah. The other thing is that themes of fate in Greek literature often... I think I've said this before. I think I said this last episode when talking about Achilles. But themes of fate in Greek literature often involve what's called double determination, where the gods have decreed that something will happen... But also, the circumstances and the character of those involved also means that things will happen in that way. So, in the case of Achilles, it's, if you go to Troy, you will die. And it happens because they go to Troy, and Patroclus falls in battle, and Achilles inevitably will also remain to fight and die because he both because he can't then withdraw from battle because he's too much in like he's too angry he needs revenge too badly and also because he loses all will to live like him going means that Patroclus is going to die which means that achilles is going to die and he's always going to go because and he's always going to end up dying because that's who he is as a person but also that's what the gods have decreed it's the pairing of This is your personality and, therefore, your will and what you would do in this situation. And the gods have said that this will happen. In Paris's case, it's okay, I think, to have it be like, okay, well, you know, if he is allowed to return as a prince of Troy, the city will fall because he is always going to end up kidnapping helen and the kidnap of helen is always going to result in the fall of troy because that's who he is because he falls in love with her and so it's the pairing of like who he is as a person and amorous dipshit (laughs) and that this is the will of the gods that like And, like, the parallelism of those two things can be really interesting and, like, thematically resonant, and it can be an interesting thing to wrestle with in terms of, like, is this all happening because of who these people are as a character, or is it happening because the gods said so? The show just doesn't do a very good job of resolving that question or even addressing that question. No,
1: no, it it completely, I don't think the creators understand that that is a really important, like, theme in the Iliad and also in, like, Greek tragedy. Like, this does not seem to have occurred to them. They're like, oh, we can make this into a chosen one narrative. And it's like, oh, but you just missed the whole point of the book. Yeah. <laughs> you missed the point. Yeah. There's also this very, like, super confusing bit where so they, f- they first say that the gods have cursed Paris for whatever reason, but it's very odd because like usually you don't get cursed unless you or your ancestor has done something in Greek mythology. But like, okay, whatever. But then they like cut to Aphrodite saying that like having a conversation with Zeus being like, oh, are you doing this just to follow the omens? Which implies that the omens are not a reflection of the gods, Will, Yeah. So I don't know what they were trying to say there. Yeah. Because that's what omens are. The omens are a reflection of the gods' will. And of course, I mean, obviously, the, the gods each have, like, different wills. Like, Aphrodite's will is in conflict with Zeus's. Yeah, but, but there's this, just, like... Yeah, it's like, this is supposed to be the representation of what a divine being is trying to tell you. It's not an independent thing.
0: Yeah, it's not like, oh, the gods are also subject to the whims of fate they are the whims of their whims are the whims of fate mostly i mean obviously there are you know there are like the three fates there's like kind of a universal concept of fate and of like balance in fate zeus talks about in the iliad Mm -hmm. that like people are given both good and bad things because life would be meaningless if you didn't have both and so this like idea that there are some like universal precepts of fate and faithfulness that even the gods are subject to in the way that they make decisions, that exists. But Zeus is not subject to the omens about Paris's death.
1: No, like, the omens are not their own separate thing yeah. that exists. Like, yeah. it's yeah, it's incredibly
0: confusing and muddled.
1: And also, I would also like to point out that Paris has no personality.
0: Yeah, he sure does not.
1: Like, they're trying to make him seem like sort of this, like, brave and caring person at certain points but at other points he does stuff that's incredibly stupid like stealing Helen so you end up with this very confusing character portrayal and you can't have any interesting discussion about like his fate and how it's determined by his actions because his actions don't make any they're not following any particular pattern they're like whatever Paris has whatever traits the writers want him to have at that moment
0: yeah (laughs) Let's talk about Patroclus. First of all, in the lead up to Patroclus going onto the battlefield and him being killed, we get this kind of interesting scene. Like, in one scene with Patroclus being like, I'm in love with you uh, to Achilles... I was a thousand times more sold on their relationship than they have managed with Helen and Paris.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I mean, like, to be fair, we're both incredibly biased because we both have, I mean, we both have read the Song of Achilles. Yes. Like, we both stand, Patroclus and Achilles. Yeah. But I think there is, like, there is a very clear relationship there. And also, I mean, I don't want to give the showrunners too much credit because it is super easy to show the like relationship and care between Achilles and Patroclus because like in episode four they show Achilles like you know caring for sorry the other way around Patroclus caring for Achilles it's a super easy thing to do um and also something that has happened for 1500 years um and here's now where I get to bring up something my favorite piece of pottery of all time yes also my favorite piece of pottery uh, of all time. There is a piece of pottery that it is it um it is I can't remember is it if it's black figure or red figure. But it it is in an, an ancient Athenian pot that shows or it's sorry, it's not a pot. It is a kylix. It is a drinking vessel. It is a it is the equivalent of a really fancy scotch glass. Um and it has this drawing on it of Achilles binding Wait, is it the other way around? It's red figure. And it is Achilles binding Patroclus' wounds. Okay, it is, yeah. It's Achilles binding Patroclus' wounds. And so, like, the idea that these two people, like, care for each other in these actions. Oh, my favorite pot. Uh, Julia just showed me the image again. I have it, like, seared into my brain. It's such a great pot. I've seen
0: it. I've physically seen the object. What? Yeah. Where is it? It's in Berlin. Oh, see, I've never been to Berlin. Yeah. I've been to a lot
1: of museums, but I've not been to Berlin. But... Again, this is, like, a super easy concept to show that these two people care for each other.
0: Yeah, like, this is the thing, is it's not actually that hard to show that they care about each other. We get Achilles looking after Patroclus in the previous episode, where Patroclus starts to get sick. And, like, ah, it's just good. That scene that we get in this episode, where Patroclus makes his appeal to Achilles about, like, we need to go fight, and Achilles is like, no... He's like and and he says something about how like, you know, stop pissing me off before I forget the affection that I held for mm-hmm. you, basically. And Patroclus like touches his face tenderly and says, It's not affection, it's love. And they have this like, love is nothing to be afraid of, love is a weakness exchange, which yeah is a trope that kills me. I will be honest. It's a basic bitch trope. And in a lot of things, it's really stupid. It's rarely executed very well. And frankly, I don't think it was actually executed very well here either. But that... I Something about that trope always gets me. And then Patroclus puts on Achilles' armor, and he goes out onto the battlefield, and he dies.
1: Yeah, I and I will say, too, that, yeah, I don't think it was executed super well, but, yeah, I, I am also... Totally a basic bitch for these two.
0: Yeah. And there are a lot of things about the way they did Patroclus' death that I liked. One of them is that we get this conversation between Achilles and Odysseus earlier in, I think it was in this same episode, where Odysseus is like, don't you miss the like blood and the chaos of battle? And Achilles is like, no, what I miss is the moment where I meet uh, an enemy that is worthy of me. And everyone around us... And it goes quiet. And everyone around us stops to watch what we're doing. And we fight. And there's, like, a halcyon moment where we are perfectly matched. And then I kill him. And everyone goes back to what they were doing. And in this scene where Patroclus... Patroclus goes out onto the battlefield and there's the chaos. And we get this cut to Achilles standing in the tent. And then everything... And like the sounds of battle and then everything goes quiet and he emerges we he like turns to run basically and we cut out and patroclus in the guise of achilles wearing Achilles' armor believed to be him is fighting hector and as achilles had described everyone around them has stopped to watch
1: it yeah I that is like an amazing piece of story like the setup and the payoff of that piece of storytelling was really beautiful because it's one of those things where like you realize as he's realizing he's like he knows exactly what is going on just by the lack of sound that is going yeah. on outside and you realize it's that at so the same time with him. it's so it, atmospheric it's so atmospheric
0: it's so good it, it
1: was really beautiful um so I will give them a hundred points for that one yeah. that was
0: really really very well done now here are the two things that I don't like about this sequence specifically the bit where patroclus is being killed actively there's stuff i didn't like about the aftermath too but first of all one of my favorite scenes in the iliad is where patroclus is laying there dying with hector's like spear in his chest first of all in the iliad Hector is not the one who kills Patroclus in a meaningful way. He gets struck with an arrow first, and then I believe it's Apollo intercedes and causes his armor to fall off. <laughs> like, <laughs> Hector... Like, Patroclus is actually Hector's martial equal. I know that they there's not really a great way to do that, but, like, it's meaningful to me that Patroclus does not go down easy, which he really does in this scene. Yeah, and yeah. second of all, that... Patroclus gets to lie there with Hector's spear in his chest and say, you've just killed yourself, essentially. Achilles is never going to forgive you for killing me. And then he dies. And him getting those last words where he gets to be the one to... And that Hector doesn't believe him. That Hector is like, whatever. Mm -hmm. Is like... I like the moment in the show where he pulls off Patroclus' helmet and realizes he's fucked up. Like, that was pretty fun. But also patroclus getting to have that last moment like him getting the last word is i like that a lot and i'm sad they didn't yeah. do it
1: no patroclus doesn't really get like much of like a meaningful death he no he like stabs. he like, he, sa- like dead. he goes
0: like no and then the actor stabs him and then he falls over dead and then achilles screams no and runs in and everyone yeah. just stands there and watches the totally unarmored achilles like swoop in and pick up his dead boyfriend <laughs> i i That That,
1: that was, like, okay, guys. And so
0: here's the other thing about the – here's the thing about the aftermath is that the battle over Patroclus's corpse is also one of my favorite parts of the Iliad. Mm -hmm. Like, Patroclus dies in the middle of a hectic battlefield, there's no, like, stillness and quiet, and the Trojans and the Greeks, like, fight over his body, and – someone has to run and tell Achilles what's happened. Mm. And Achilles like has a breakdown when he gets the news because, but even as he's having his breakdown, having gotten the news, they're still fighting. They're physically having a tug of war with Patroclus's corpse because the Greeks need it so that they can conduct a funeral and the Trojans want to like display it basically. I mean, they want to, they want to loot the armor, which they do end up doing. And like, that whole thing and, like, the intensity of the fact that, like, Achilles isn't there when Patroclus dies and in the immediate aftermath, and Achilles has to wait for, like, a long time to find out whether they're going to be able to get Pat's body back. mm mm-hmm it's good. It's like, it's really intense. It's quite good. And I wish, like, again, this is something that if they hadn't done as much stupid bullshit, they would have had time for this.
1: Yeah. Although then you do have to sort of write around the beautiful thing that they set up where Achilles can hear everything go silent. Yeah. So you do have to do a little bit of like fiddling there. You can't have it exactly parallel what happens in the Iliad because of that it, but yeah, there's definitely other things they could have done. They could have yeah. had everything collapse back into fighting once. Yeah, and I mean the thing killed, is Achilles, like-,
0: like in the Iliad, even in the Iliad, Achilles like has a premonition. Mm. I can imagine ways they could have done it. Yeah. hmm Suffice to say, I'm I don't hate that aspect. Like, I think that ultimately it was fine. I'm just like, this is something that I like in the Iliad. Yeah. I wish they'd done it a little bit because it also gives an opportunity for the other Greek heroes to show off. Ajax and Diomedes and even Menelaus and Agamemnon do not get to be on the battlefield in this show, which sucks.
1: There is a lot of, like, battle sequence in the Iliad. And there's not a lot here, probably because it's, like, expensive or difficult to shoot or whatever. I'm guessing there's some logistical reason why they didn't want to do it. But then you really lose, like... The impact of when they go back into the city or into the camp because they're there all the time. Yeah. Especially in Troy, you lose any meaning of them, well, not any meaning, but you lose a lot of the meaning of them returning because you haven't seen them be out in the battlefield for most of the time or in, like, in the yeah. midst of this, like, grim and dangerous and serious battle.
0: And I mean, not to say that, like, the Iliad is a 100% accurate depiction of warfare. It's probably no. not. No. But, like... It's still there is a dramatism to the, to the way that the Iliad depicts warfare that like, they really lost in this adaptation. Yeah. Here's the other thing I hated about the way they did Patroclus's death. They parallel it with Andromache giving birth to Hector's son. Uh-huh. You want to start us well, off? Well,
1: so my main problem around Andromache giving birth is that. Andromache, they've said Andromache up is somebody who's like really desperately wants to be pregnant and is so excited to be pregnant. If you are that desperate to be pregnant and excited about being pregnant and you know that your belly is big and the baby is coming any day now, you are like aware that some contractions might be coming on, right? Like... You, and especially in the ancient world, too, where people were much more closely acquainted with childbirth because it would, you know, happen in the home as opposed to in a hospital.
0: And also because people died doing it all the time and everyone was pretty scared. Yeah. You would be
1: super aware of the fact that you were going into labor and you probably wouldn't be wandering alone somewhere if you were, like, going through a bunch of contractions. So we see this scene basically where Andromache just, like, gives birth alone on, like, the floor of the barn because she starts having contractions in the barn, but labor does not happen that quickly. Yeah. She like gives labor birth. very rarely happens that quickly. Like you got hours of contractions, right? So and if and if And where is everyone? I know like if and if you have a a princess who is in labor and you are a servant, you are not leaving her alone. There's so it just bothered me from a logistical standpoint because Especially into, in terms as well of the character work they've done with Andromache, because it's clear that she would be so aware if she was going into labor because she cares so much about this baby.
0: Yeah. So this show was made by people who don't know anything about a uh, pregnancy or the process of giving birth.
1: Yeah, that was my exact thought. Is like somebody who has does not have a uterus wrote this.
0: Yeah. So my gripe about this is that the parallelism between this birthing scene and Patroclus' death doesn't really work on like a literary analysis level. I don't think it makes a lot of sense. Like Patroclus dying and Astanax being born to me doesn't really work very well as a parallel because like so what? It's supposed to just be like, oh this is the beginning of the end. Like what we what we're seeing is the birth of an infant who is going to become a casualty in like two weeks. Yeah. I don't know, like I it just didn't work very well for me. It took away from the impact of both things. Yeah, no, it wasn't great.
1: <sighs> yeah, and I also have some other like notes about Hector coming back into the city and that whole scene of like him meeting his child for the first time. Um, I don't know if you have more you want to say about Patrick was first. <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, but that that kind of annoyed me that they're showing this scene of him coming back to this into the city and meeting his child for the first time. Because in the Iliad, like, in book six, they have a very similar scene, but a- 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 Astyanax has not just been born. Like, he's, I don't know, probably a year old or something at this point. Like, he's yeah. old enough to sort of, like, move and be afraid. Like, there's this very clear scene where he's like afraid of the helmet his father is wearing and it's this really beautiful sweet scene where there's actually the child is old enough to interact with his father and you miss that by having him just be born and just that's my favorite scene in book six i think it's such a beautiful and
0: sweet scene and they just lose it and yeah it it also loses for that reason the juxtaposition created in that scene between hector as a family man and hector as a warrior yeah Mm -hmm. And that these things are not compatible. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Yeah, and again, and this also sort of goes back to the thing that, like, we don't see them in battle that much, is you lose the impact of Andromache, like, begging him not to go back out. Yeah. Because she, we've spent all this time with them together, so we don't really see them separated, and we don't really see her like, having to spend all this time without him, and how difficult that is for her. Yeah. Like, they, again, they do a lot of like, showing, like, telling and not showing with that, where they have like, them have conversations like, Andromache and Helen have like, a very forced conversation about it, but they don't actually show it. Yeah. And so then it doesn't have any impact, and it's like, that's the that's the point, is that war impacts everybody, and you guys just, like, missed the boat on that one.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Here's my number one thing that I'm big mad about, as far as the way they dealt with the aftermath of Patroclus' death, is that we don't get to see Achilles' grief. Yeah. Like, to be clear, I have big feelings about this because I did my whole master's dissertation (laughs) on Achilles' grief. And there's a lot of it. He mourns extensively, lavishly, and publicly for like three and a half, four books of the Iliad. He spends days weeping over Patroclus's corpse to the point where Patroclus's fucking ghost has to appear to him in a dream to be like, please give me my funeral rites so that I can pass over into the underworld. <laughs> He's that broken up about Patroclus being dead that he's completely paralyzed by grief. And when Patroclus finally is cremated, he specifically has his bones interred in a, in an urn large enough that his body can also be interred in that same urn. Like, this is a canonical detail. Yeah. And we lose all of it. We get one shitty manly tear when he's standing in front of Patroclus' funeral pyre.
1: Yeah, and it's like, okay, this is done now. This, yeah, no, I really, and I am not an Iliad scholar, so I didn't definitely, like, notice that as deeply, but I was just like, oh, this is over now? Like, this is all we're getting? Yeah. Like...
0: We also don't get Briseis grieving for Patroclus, which is a whole, that's her whole character in the yeah. Iliad. And then, like, I don't know, just, like, let men grieve. Let men grieve. Let men be sad. Let men have emotions. Let Achilles fucking have emotions. So I know that um, our current culture
1: has issues with men crying, but in fact, men used to cry a lot in antiquity. Yeah. antiquity. The ancient Greeks were totally chill with men crying in appropriate occasions, and grief is in appropriate occasions, so just, just let the men cry.
0: Yeah, And I mean, the thing is, Achilles is excessive in his emotions. Yeah. Even by Greek standards. Oh, yeah. But that's part of his character. That's, like, most of his character. And I just... Uh, it infuriates me so much that they just didn't do it. And I know that... Like, I talked about this earlier in the episode already, but I'm still big mad about it. At least he's convincingly mad when he rolls up to the gates of Troy to yes, fight Hedra. Yes, he is,
1: he is convincingly mad at that
0: Now, point. I'll say this about that, though. We lose Achilles' rampage, This is the thing, is like, he's committed to just killing Trojans until Hector shows up. He comes out onto the battlefield in Book 20 of the Iliad and just starts murdering people. We get, I believe it is a total of something like 23 or 24 named kills just by Achilles in Books 20 and 21. And I'm sure we there are more, like, unnamed casualties because he kills so many people that he clogs the river Scamander with corpses. And the river god rises up and tries to kill him because he <laughs> refuses to stop murdering the Trojans. Like, until Hector finally comes out. But yeah, we just, like, he doesn't, we don't get any of that. He kills some captives. Well, it's because they don't. Like,
1: there isn't really sort of like constant battle going on.
0: Again, yeah, this is another symptom. This is another symptom of the fact that they just don't depict combat that much, which sucks. Also,
1: like, Achilles withdrawing from the war doesn't mean that much because we don't really see that much war going on. Yeah, we haven't seen
0: him on the battlefield. Five minutes of battle at this point. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, so. fucking Hector, like, gives in after these this one random captive has been killed. Never mind all the other captives that have surely been killed. And he says, I'd rather live a short life as your husband than a long life alone. Can we stop stealing Achilles' themes and giving them to other people? Please. I know that's not exactly Achilles' deal, but still. And then they fight. Finally, fucking somebody throws a spear in a duel. <laughs> Finally. It took this long. And Achilles murders Hector brutally in front of his entire family, where they're standing on the walls, and then he drags off his corpse behind his chariot.
1: So, I do like that they're standing on the ramparts, because again, you get this thing in... Book six of the Iliad, where Hector can't find Andromache at first because she's on the ramparts, like looking over at the battlefield. However, those ramparts are not very
0: big. No, <laughs> they're very
1: short ramparts. Like you could knock all of those people out with arrows. Like
0: oh yeah, from
1: like th- the ramparts need to be a little bit taller here. <laughs> yeah,
0: the set stuff is not great. I the fact that I have this little to say about the final combat between Achilles and Hector says a lot about this show.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's another thing if the combat is bland. So,
0: yeah, I guess that's all we have to say in specific. I have a general note to add on to everything we've said, which is that a lot of the things we've talked about, particularly in this episode on episodes four, five, and six, come down to the way that they approach the ancient material. I'm going to, like, spitball a theory about their approach. In translation theory, we... There's a concept called um, domestication versus foreignization in a translation. A domesticating translation is one that translates words into... Or concepts, but, you know, words into... A cultural equivalent, as well as like a literal equivalent, trying to make the text be as familiar as possible in the colloquial sense to its target language and audience. A foreignizing translation is one that allows foreign concepts to remain foreign. I am of the opinion that this show is essentially conducting a domesticating translation of all of the events of the Iliad and its surrounding stuff. And it's just not that well done overall. No.
1: And I think my sort of biggest problem with this is they miss out on all of the themes of the Iliad that are still super resonant today. They're trying to create thematic material out of aspects of the story that is very modern instead of doing an adaptation that draws on what is Relatable in the context of the ancient material. Like stuff about feeling like you don't have any control over your life. Stuff about like the horrors of war and of grief. Like those are all things that are very, that are like still very resonant and like why the text itself is still resonant. And these other stories around the Trojan War are still resonant. But then they, the way that they've done this, adaptation really
0: just misses out on a lot of that yeah and it's not just the broad thematic stuff but also specifics um we didn't bring this up but for example in episode six the reason that the myrmidons end up going into battle that patroclus leads the myrmidons into battle finally is that the trojans have come around and decided to commit to a gambit to burn the Greeks' supplies In the Iliad, the Trojans are pushing through the Greek line past their trenches to attempt to burn their ships so that they can't get home. There's really no reason to change that detail because it represents the same thing that something vital to their survival in the long run is being attacked, other than that we in our society today simply don't place the same emphasis and value on ships that the greeks did like the greeks cared a lot about ships homer cared a lot about ships there's a whole catalog of all of the ships that everybody came with in book two it's like some people love the catalog of ships shout out to several of my professors and some people find it interminably boring and like that's valid either way i find the catalog of ships conceptually interesting but hard to read (laughs) but like they cared a lot about ships But we don't, and we don't have the same associations, whereas, oh, they're burning our food, is, like, a universally intelligible concept. It's Mm -hmm. just not as meaningful and, like, specific and therefore intense. They've fundamentally altered a lot of the events and characterizations to make them in some way more understandable to a modern audience and more relatable so that the audience doesn't have to work as hard to connect to the culture being portrayed, which kind of sucks. Like, it's a take, and I don't disapprove of all domestication in translation. I think there are ways to do a domesticating translation of things that can be really interesting, I think one example that you like
1: and I don't is the Leonardo DiCaprio Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, which I believe we've talked about, which I find incredibly annoying, but you have a fondness for in your heart.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: But yes. also, that's one thing I can respect because even though I don't personally enjoy it, I can respect that they went this went with the specific stylistic choice that at least like kind of makes sense. Yeah, like it, like there was something. And in that case, they it's were going like for. we
0: are. And, and especially since it's juxtaposed with this still very archaic dialogue, so the domestication of the setting and the costuming and all of that other stuff makes the archaic elements more intelligible to an audience that isn't super familiar with Shakespeare. Yes. Yeah. So in this particular case, they are making these choices to domesticate the Iliad, apparently because they think that we just won't get it. Yeah. Or because they want it to be a different kind of story. Like you said, they want it to be a chosen one narrative, which is very popular in modern media. But the Iliad isn't a chosen one narrative. No,
1: it is very much not a chosen one
0: narrative. And they just don't seem to have understood how to tell the story of the Trojan War without turning it into a set of narrative tropes that people already understand. And, like, I think that that's just weak.
1: Yeah. Um... I, I had the thought, like, I had this, like, realization partway through episode four. It's like, oh, they're kind of just, like, trying to do a Game of Thrones, but they just, like, did a really bad job.
0: I mean, because, Game of Thrones is also bad. Well,
1: no, but say what you will about Game of Thrones. Like, there are parts of Game of Thrones that are really good and have really interesting characterization. Like, does it go off the rails in season eight? Probably. But, like, the first few seasons are really good. There are really interesting characters. You have... Like, female characters that are sort of unlike any other character we get to see on TV. Like, Sansa is a really good example of that for the first few seasons. And here they just don't... Paris is just, like, a worse Jon Snow. Like, a Jon Snow if Jon Snow were just, like, worse. kind of a dick, yeah. basically. It sucks. Who didn't have good characterization. Yeah, yeah they were just really trying to do Game of Thrones, but they did Game of Thrones badly, which is sure is saying something.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to two things, which is first of all, some of the equivalencies they've tried to make in domesticating the material just aren't they're just like false equivalencies conceptually that they don't work or they're just not as compelling. They don't work very well. And they also feel super random. And they feel random, and they've just done a lot of stuff that doesn't feel meaningful instead of actually using the material that they had. They threw out a lot of stuff that they didn't need to throw out and put in stuff that, like, kind of doesn't anything. And then the other thing is that in doing that, they've lost a lot of what makes the Iliad unique. If the Iliad were the same and had the same tropes as any other text and it had the same content as like, for example, like a medieval war story, mm-hmm. an Arthurian legend, or even a modern war story, it it wouldn't be the Iliad. And this particular text has endured for an extremely long time and people have continued to be interested in it. I think in part because it was the originator of versions of a lot of tropes that we continue to find interesting. And they've thrown out a lot of those things or they've used versions of the tropes that have been changed over time, which is okay, that's how reception works. But like, instead of just portraying the like original version of the trope, they have used the new version of the trope and it's not this it's not the same
1: I, I just feel like i don't think and i feel like this is i feel like this is really represented by the fact that they start off every episode with a text that says inspired by homer and the greek myths is it i don't think they really did a lot of reading of the texts or research yeah. and this doesn't necessarily bother me from a oh like like scholarly standpoint like whatever like you don't have to read a million lines of verse that's fine but you sort of from a like, literary perspective when you're doing an adaptation, I think you want to be familiar with the material.
0: Yeah. like, and, and you should understand why you are like, why are you adapting this thing as opposed to anything else?
1: Yeah. And if your reason for adapting something is like, oh, this seems like it might be popular right now, like that's not a good, don't do it. Yeah, <laughs> do you Just write a story from scratch or something. Because like if you're like, what's the point of doing an adaptation of something if you don't have a clear reason why you want to do that adaptation that's not sort of, like, to do with money or, like, popularity or whatever.
0: Yeah. The driving principle of the show is unclear to me. Yeah. hmm And that sucks. Like, that – we said this in the first episode. If you want to make a period romance or a wartime drama or whatever, I can't even tell what this show is supposed to be, which yeah. says mm-hmm. something – Just, like, make that show. Yeah. Instead of adapting the Iliad. They just are trying to bite off more than
1: they can chew, I think, and I think that's part of the reason why it also feels so muddled, is they don't spend enough time concentrated
0: on any one thing. No, they (laughs) don't spend enough time on anything, really. A lot of it feels really throwaway or very rushed. And, like, there's a lot of stuff in the Iliad. There's a lot of characters, there's quite a lot of plot people have their own things going on, because the Iliad is really long. Yeah. There's a lot in it. And they did the entire plot of the Iliad, plus a bunch of other stuff that they invented, in three episodes of an eight-episode series. Like, that's wild. Yeah. Why would you try to do that? Why would you not serialize either like the lead up or just the events of the Iliad or like the aftermath because there's enough story in any of those things to do an eight episode miniseries. And I think people would have watched it and it might have been better and then they could have made more.
1: Yeah, they could have done a second or a third season. Like, yeah, conceptually, it doesn't really.
0: But instead they rushed it and they they rushed it and they crammed it all Mm. into one season and none of it was executed very well. Thanks for listening to Classically Trained. This podcast is hosted and produced by Allison Marlin and Julia Peroni on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast on our website, classicallytrainedpod.podbean.com, and anywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to reach us, we can be emailed at classicallytrainedpod at gmail.com, contacted via Twitter at classicallypod, or you can leave a review. Finally, some acknowledgements. We'd first like to thank Nicholas Judy and Dark Fantasy Studio, who produced their wonderful music. We would also like to thank the Society for Classical Studies for their help in supporting this podcast. Our next episode in two weeks will be the final episode on Troy, Fall of a City. As always, be well and do not, under any circumstances, do as the Romans did.